Welcome to It's Complicated, a diversity, equity, and inclusion podcast by O'Melveny and Myers and Ivy Planning Group. Now here's your host, Gary Smith. Good evening, and thank you all for participating in O'Melveny and Myers' diversity, equity, and inclusion podcast series, It's Complicated. I want to introduce a few of our panelists and participants, and uh, let's get started. Joining us this evening is Jocelyn Cooley, President of Cooley Consulting, Brian Ellis, Senior Vice President and General Counsel, Danaher, Shaka Patterson, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Talem Global Education, and Eric Richards, Partner on Melvany and Myers, LLP. First and foremost, thank you all for joining. I really appreciate you all being willing to spend some time with us this evening. These are, these are interesting times we find ourselves in, and, and I, I want to spend some time targeting this evening around a couple of thoughts. One, quite frankly, is just, you know, we're post-election, we think, and we really are going to try to figure out tonight, what is the impact of the election? You know, when you think about what's happened with the election, when you think about, you know, the, the, where we are right now, I will be very curious at a macro level to understand how you think the election of President-elect Biden Will change and his administration will change the way your organization will actually think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. What, is, what are some of the things you'll do differently? What are some of your expectations? How do you see things working? So, with that as a as a backdrop, I'll start with Brian and Eric. Brian, Eric, has the outcome of the election changed any of your organization's diversity, equity, and inclusion priorities? What are one or two of your major DEI goals going into twenty twenty one? Sure, I'll I'll start that. And simple answer is not going to change it at all. The, the administration in charge today has very little to do with what what we were planning and how we were planning. And um, <clears throat> the incoming administration, m- much the same. We are focused on increasing our population of women as well as people of color. Uh, we've gone out publicly uh, this year. Uh, setting five-year goals to increase our female population globally from forty to forty percent, from thirty-five percent, and uh, people of color uh, from thir- to thirty-five percent, from thirty-one percent in the U.S. Those goals were set with the current administration. Those goals will continue into the new administration. So there's nothing, n- nothing new there. Perhaps the only other thing I would mention is that we're also going to go a little bit deeper into um, the unpeeling un- the people of color uh, statistics to make sure that we understand um, where our challenges are, where we have opportunity and how we uh, focus more on, on uh, inclusion to ensure that we don't uh, suffer what we think of as a leaky bucket. So uh, priorities remain the same, uh, notwithstanding the administration change. Outstanding. What about you, Eric? What do you see? Well, the short answer to that question for O'Melveny is also that our priorities remain unchanged. O'Melveny has been committed to diversity in a broad sense for my entire career at the firm, which is over 30 years now. And it's on that foundation that we've sought to focus specifically on diversity and inclusion for lawyers and staff from underrepresented groups and disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and we remain committed to that. And uh, the, the change in administration doesn't alter that. Some of the interesting things we're working on uh, include, and I'm very much involved in this effort, looking at all of our internal structures and policies firm-wide 
to determine if there are better ways of doing things that would promote diversity uh, in an even stronger way, uh, whether it's recruiting, retention, or the advancement of our lawyers and staff, uh, really from top to bottom, taking a look at uh, all, the, all the internal things that we do. We're just starting that process, and I'm very excited about where it's going. Uh, but to give you an early example of something that uh, we've spotted early on is the process by which we recruit and bring on lateral partners. We uh, promote organically, but we also from time to time look to the lateral market to bring in senior lawyers at the partner level to do work in a variety of different areas. Uh, we've been very comfortable uh, historically uh, on uh, recruiting people who are introduced to us based on our own internal networks, our own partner networks that exist or in many cases, uh, getting unsolicited resumes from headhunters. Uh, it's a very comfortable process. You can justify it, uh, for example, by saying, well, you, you have some familiarity uh, with, or someone in your organization already has familiarity with some of the people you're recruiting. But uh, I think on reflection, everyone would, would agree that that's not the best process for ensuring that you have the most diverse talent pool that you're looking at for these lateral positions. I think on further reflection, you could even uh, I think easily make the case that it's not the best way for identifying the talent pool generally and getting the best people overall, uh, whatever their backgrounds are for the positions you're seeking to fill. So it's those types of things that uh, I'm very uh, pleased that we're going to be looking at and uh, through a series of workshops uh, comprised of uh, small groups from people across uh, all parts of our organization. Uh, we're going to put brainstorming sessions together to develop uh, ideas, as I said, across the board. I will say with respect to the change administrations, uh, the private sector has been in the lead over the last uh, number of years on uh, the DE&I front. Um, organizations like our own and uh, the colleagues who are joining me on this call who've remained good corporate citizens and remain committed to diversity, equity, inclusion issues. Um, other parts of the business world, the tech industry, for example, promoting uh, the importance of immigration uh, despite the public policy over the last number of years. I think we feel very pleased at the prospects of the public sector joining us or rejoining us in those efforts. Uh, and I think my own view is that without uh, full uh, participation by all sectors of our country, both private and public, uh, we're not going to make the real progress that we need to on these fronts. So I think we find that refreshing uh, and encouraging, even if our own priorities are, are, are largely the same. Well, that's great. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate that. Jocelyn Chaka. You know, how do you see accountability playing out when you think about holding leaders accountable for achieving diversity, equity, and inclusion goals? What, what are some of your strategies specifically around leadership accountability? You know, I think it's really important to ensure that the goals are at the center of the engagement. You know, so now that I'm, you know, on the, on the outside or outside, inside, you know, often goals are, when these initiatives are created, goals are set. But for those of us who are partners, um, you know, to our to our corporate partners, it's important that the goals are referred to at the beginning of any engagement and that they continue to be a part of that engagement, similar to any um, well-run performance review um, or sales review, that there's regular review of, you know, are these the right goals? And if so, how are we tracking to them um, in this engagement and course correcting where need be? Shaka, what do you say? Yeah, so you know, as a, I, I agree with that. And I think as a member of the C-suite, part of my responsibility is to make sure that 
we treat DNI goals like we would treat any other goals uh, that we keep them front and center, that we track them, we measure them, um, we look at them uh, quarterly in our scorecard, just as we do uh, all of our other goals, and that they you know stand on equal footing with all of our other goals. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate that. I, I will say around this accountability conversation, the more that, that whatever it is we're asking the organization to do, the more that it mirrors the way they would do things normally and naturally, that does seem to break ties. It seems like if we reflect the way the organization thinks around metrics, if we reflect the way they think around measuring performance and quite frankly, tracking things that matter, it just seems to create a, a much easier transition for the organizations that are trying to, to hold themselves accountable around this. Eric Johnson, I'm curious, as you think about society right now, if you think about, you know, what responsibility do organizations have to really bridge what I'll call this divide that we still see in our country? You know, is it only within the universe that they control or do they have a broader responsibility beyond the organizations that they lead and manage out to that broader world? What are, we, what are you suggesting right now, given this incredible divide that, that we seem to be feeling societally? I'll, I'll take a first stab at that. I think organizations do have that responsibility, and leaders of organizations have that responsibility. All of our organizations are part of the broader macro system, and for diversity, equity, and inclusion purposes, there's not a wall between what happens in the outside world and inside your organization. At uh, the base, I think the same problem, uh, presumptions about race, um, infect both the entire macro system and I think any microsystem that's part of that, including each of our organizations, at some level, in some way, the problem may manifest itself and, and surely does differently, um, it, it, w- whether you're in an internal environment or an external environment. But, but the problem is there. And I, I, from a leader's perspective, I don't see how a leader can be invested in one, i.e. his or her organization, and, uh, and it's a confrontation with those questions and problems and not the other. And I think also being involved in both uh, within your organization and outside of it can inform you in uh, the ideas you might take uh, in, in your organization. So I think it's important for leaders to do that. What, 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 I, what strikes me about your question, though, is, is bridging the gap. And I, I want to be clear, at least in my view, on what that does and doesn't mean. I think there are lots of ways to bridge that gap, uh, whether it's uh, engaging in dialogue by setting an example or, or even calling out people whose conduct is wrong. But I don't believe in um, the diversity, equity, and inclusion context that it means compromise or, or giving in to the, the, the overall principle of, of equality and, and equity. Some things are just so antithetical to those principles. Uh, the Proud Boys, for example, uh, I don't see building a bridge to that in any context. You know, hopefully in all of our organizations, we don't we don't face uh, issues as stark as as that. Uh, but I'm sure from time to time there are examples of uh, of clearly uh, inappropriate conduct and things that we should all speak out against. And I and I don't think, uh, as I said, that there's compromise or bridges to build on uh, on some of those stark examples. Well, thanks for that, Jocelyn. I'd agree with Eric's point around micro and macro um, and the two coming together um, in organizations or corporations. I think conversation is important, but I think, you know, too often we start 
and stop at conversation. Um, and organizations are this, they're this, they're corporations, they're this interesting place. And one of the few places that I can think of where difference comes together in the way that it does um, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our places of worship, we don't necessarily always have the same degree of, of, of difference and the same opportunity that we have in the workplace. Um, one around, you know, organizations and businesses exist to sell or advance a product. And that product is generally designed to reach, you know, a variety of consumers or, or, or end users. And so that makes, you know, companies and organizations very unique in this work. And so I do think that it is, um, you know, that there's a tremendous opportunity and accountability for organizations to bridge that divide. And I think it's important for the organization to continually remind its population the impact that they have, the opportunity to continue to educate um, their work, workforce, workplace, um, and, and the marketplace. Well, thank you for that. Brian Chaka, I want to bring you all into this conversation because Eric made a, a really important point that while we are trying to connect and we're trying to, to manage our way through this, this divided time that we find ourselves in as a nation, you know, Eric's point was really about the non-negotiables of, you know, there have to be some non-negotiables. There's, there may be some audiences that we are trying to connect to, but quite frankly, there may be some audiences that we're not trying to connect to. And I want to make sure that I don't leave the two of you out as, as it relates to your organizations and how you think about how do you balance that or, or how do you make those those choices? I think yeah, I certainly I certainly would agree with Eric's point. And these are real examples, um, especially if you think about large organizations like ours, um, <clears throat> where you have a large U.S. population, large global population. They're just some non-negotiables um, and lines that from a moral and ethical perspective, you just have to draw. It's not a political question. It's just a moral and ethical one. And, you know, you, you and I think it's specifically in my role, I get called upon to opine on whether or not we can draw certain certain lines. And it takes leaders to step up and just simply say there's just things we're not gonna we're not gonna countenance. And you know, Eric used the example of probable. There are other examples uh, where we find people on web on the web uh, connecting their personal views that are vile, uh, inappropriate, uh, and and we make tough choices. Those are people that don't need to be part of our organization. And and yet, you know, one can have a debate of whether that's appropriate or not. Are we are we in the game of policing beliefs and thoughts? And I, I just think we have to use common sense test of what is what is uh, appropriate and what is not. And um, I, I I think it's leadership's obligation to to, to draw those bright lines and not get into debates on splitting you know splitting hairs on what someone's right of association affiliation or speech when in fact we could just all agree it's pretty vile and not appropriate for that to be associated with our organization and we're going to take those stands so i i absolutely believe that leadership plays an important role and uh these are these are real issues that companies like ours are facing yeah appreciate that shaka yeah uh very similar um you know we have a a large customer population uh, in the U.S. and uh, globally, uh, and uh, particularly in the spring and the summer, as Brian indicated, you know we we saw a real uptick in uh, a lot of disturbing uh, posts on social media, and uh, in my role, uh, I was asked 
to uh, work with HR and others uh, to determine, you know, what we should do. And I think uh, as leaders, you know, we just concluded that, you know, those people uh, were not appropriate um, for uh, our community. And we exited them, whether they were uh, customers or whether they were uh, employees uh, from our community. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I really appreciate all of your answers there. And and I, I think I want to stress the point of leadership. I think I really want to make sure that that people have an appreciation that in these times, this is when, when leadership steps up. This is what, what organizations are asking for. Quite frankly, it's what our nation's asking for. So, so I appreciate the, the, the certainty with which all of you have sort of responded to. It doesn't have to be a choice. This doesn't have to be a debate. There's sometimes just a clear right and wrong, and we're going to stand on the side that's right. So, so I appreciate that. Moving in a slightly different direction, I, I want to hear sort of, you know, this, this series is called It's Complicated, not because we're not encouraged, not because we don't think it's possible, but we know that there are a lot of things that have to be reconciled to do this well. So I'm curious, really, Shaka, Brian, I'll start with you. Are there recent events that you find encouraging? You know, are there some things going on right now where you find yourself saying, I'm really excited about this moment in time right now. Right now, I think there's something that, not so much a moment, but actually a movement. You know, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from each of you around what's what's giving you, you know, a sense of positive nature, that, that a belief that this is going to work well. Yeah, so I'll start. Uh, you know, certainly uh, the fact that 81 million people um, voted for a black woman uh, vice president, uh, someone who is uh, number two to a 78 year old uh, white man uh, who and who could at that age any moment become the president, um, I think is uh, a tremendously uh, positive uh, sign. I think the way uh, many corporations have stepped up uh, and started to look at and examine their leadership teams, uh, examine their board composition, and began to make uh, not just incremental, but in some cases, radical changes to their leadership teams and to their boards um, is uh, are very positive signs. And then, you know, I think uh, at our company, uh, I was uh, very pleasantly surprised at uh, the the self-reflection and introspection um, that occurred, uh, particularly among uh, my white uh, colleagues and peers and the way it has continued. Um, uh, so it, it, it appears that uh, self-reflection and introspection um, has taken root and people are really um, trying to make uh, significant differences. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that comment, Chaka, that I think if you zoom out from the narrow vision of one side won, one side lost, I think there was an incredibly profound moment that's not lost on me having two black daughters that the number two, two person sitting next to the, the 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 control of the country and leadership of the world is a black woman that they that they that they look at uh, and see a part of themselves and that's and that's real they can see and they can believe that to me is is the single most important progressive move that was made that 85 million people thought that was a good idea. I don't think 85 million people elected 
Joe Biden alone, they saw the strength of a black woman at his side. And I think, think that's just, that to me is so incredibly encouraging. I think the, um, the other thing, which is, it's been a tough several months and people have, uh, have dug deep to try and really square what's been going on publicly. I mean, COVID has created an environment where a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking because <laughs> they aren't doing, they're not moving around, they're not going they're along their normal day. And we've had an opportunity now to really be reflective of, of, of some of the, the, the stubbornness of, of race and, and, and race relations in the, in the country in ways where it's, it's caused people to pause and be reflective. And uh, it's even paused and it's, it's caused people to pause who, are, who believe themselves to be progressive in their thinking and in their beliefs to really uh, uncover that this stubborn thing called racism is, is, is alive and well. And I think that has the, the fact that we've had time to be reflective and we've had time to um, really wrestle with these issues um, has, and the fact that people have been willing to engage in them, whether they be straightforward, whether they be clumsy, where people make mistakes, people, people have had the time now to really kind of be reflective. And I think I've, I, can, I can say certainly over the last six months, as, as I'm sure everybody here has had more conversations on race than collectively in six months than you probably had in the last you know, decade on this subject, but it's far more productive. There's action coming from the words. People are getting engaged. I have colleagues who have decided that they're going to go on their own learning journeys and start becoming more literate on the issues of race instead of just taking things at face value or just suggesting that the world's a difficult place and we all have to figure our own, our own way through it. To see people trying to educate themselves and to get more familiar and drive empathy is probably the probably the other thing I would say is just really encouraging that there's a there is a concerted effort amongst my white colleagues to develop empathy. It's it's a great point. I mean, this appetite to learn, this appetite to to lean in and be curious is is probably more prevalent than than any time we've seen in the marketplace for sure. Our client base wants to get smarter. I mean, they're asking for ways to get smarter. And I, I think the other piece that I find interesting is they also feel responsible in terms of, they're not just asking black and brown colleagues to teach them. They're saying they've got to show up better than maybe they've shown up historically. Jocelyn, Eric, you know, when you think about the other side of this conversation, you know, are there some things that still give you pause? Are there some, are there some things you think about around this journey where you'd say, I'm, I'm optimistic, certainly. I know the, I know the optimism that's, that's a part of this group. But are there some things that, that if we don't get them right, we're still going to struggle? Yes, for sure. Um, you know, the, the data suggests that the level of engagement um, around all of this energy and, and effort and work that we've seen since George Floyd and, you know, as a result of a lot of the efforts around Black Lives Matter, that it has declined you know, we saw a number of companies, their first step was around philanthropy. You know, so, so in, the, in, the, in the media and the press, we, we saw lots of um, very large donations to um, all sorts of entities that, you know, each of us in this forum and, and everyone we know um, care about. But as time, you know, goes on, we're, we're seeing less of that, 
um, philanthropy and sort of social impact translate into um, the, the volume of, of opportunities and jobs um, that we would, you know, that we would hope to come out of this. So that's a, it's a, we're still in process. So it's not to say, you know, that it's not happening. It's just not happening at the same rate. The energy seems to have waned. And I think some of that may be, as you um, reference, Gary, is that the education part is so critical and time consuming. Um, and so while many organizations and individuals came out the gate really strong, um, there's a lot of work to be done to make this progress. Yeah, I'm also hopeful, Gary, that the, um, the individual engagement and individual recognition of our own power is able to be sustained and worry that it, it, it won't be. And I hope that we're able to take advantage of the momentum that's been created by that, whether it's the protests that uh, we, we saw in mass uh, late spring and over the summer, or whether it's uh, the, the, the voting of, of, uh, in mass of people across the country, uh, despite the obstacles put in their way, uh, including poll closures, newly invented rules to um, suppress voting in the wake of uh, the expiration of provisions of the Voting Rights Act, um, even explicit threats uh, that people still felt empowered individually to, to express themselves, I'm very hopeful by. But I'm cautioned by the long-term march of what, what this is. Um, you know, the, um, the, the base of the problem is, uh, I'll, I'll uh, quote Brian Stevenson, the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, who uh, you know, speaks of the basic problem being uh, um, the country's issues with racial differences. Uh, the North won the Civil War, he says, but the South won the narrative uh, in that um, the narrative that uh, racial differences uh, exist, that uh, African-Americans in particular are less worthy, less capable, is, is, uh, explains a lot of the uncomfortable history that we have here and, and uh, leading up to today. Uh, and even despite great progress during eras like the Civil Rights Movement, we find ourselves back struggling with this question of the narrative. So I hope all the momentum that has been established, all the individual power that's been provided to, uh, to help us make progress in what I hope is a great spurt this time, because I think history shows you make progress in spurts, gets us a long way. Um, but, but I also am cautious that uh, it, it's a long march and we have to constantly work on that narrative. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate that. I, I, I need all of you to, to lean in, and, and I'm, I'm asking you for some help on this next question, because it's, it's a phenomenon that we've been running into, and, and quite frankly, it, it's, it's a concern, but I want to get some perspective. I want to hear some energy around how you would address this if this were to sort of present itself in front of you at this, at this time. We're starting to run into some organizations that, I mean, I guess the easiest way to say it is they're really more worried about the backlash than they are the problem. You know, if you take the, the challenges that they're experiencing inside their organization around equity, fairness, diversity, inclusion, uh, we're starting to run into a, a, a narrative that's creeping up around, but shouldn't we be more worried about the harm we might be doing to, to someone else? Almost implying that, you know, they're more worried about reverse discrimination than they are the initial discrimination that created the, the harm and the challenge for people that are already in the building. I'm curious when I say that, how do you react? What do you hear when I say that? What's, what's, what's your first reaction? And that's, this is to all of you. 
maybe I'll start with, I hear that same thing and it's disturbing. It's frustrating because we haven't even gotten to solutions to, to write significantly, you know, wrongs that have existed for, for generations. And we're, but yet we move to needing to placate and solve for what is the least important element of this. And that is, um, alienating, alienating or creating backlash for the majority population. It, it, it's, it's a, you have hit, you've hit a nerve here, which for me is, is like being from Chicago with like the third rail on the subway. Um, <laughs> It, it it derails the entire conversation. In my mind, it's one of the reasons why progress has been so so slow and and barely incremental. Because when you actually move to solutions to try and get at that countermeasuring what has been uh, generational inequality, and we have to lean back to make sure that the that everybody else on the other side who's been the benefactors of that are okay. Uh, it, it distracts from the. It, it actually takes away from the narrative here that that the benefactors here are, are are the ones we need to be worried about, and that is the wrong narrative. And I and so for me, I, I struggle with that, and I'm not surprised you're hearing it because organizations that are trying to make change, this is exactly what creeps up when that change starts to get hard, and that is how do we how do we solve for making making the majority feel better about where they are in this process, and that. I don't have a great answer, but I have a lot of frustration behind that point. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, I guess I, w- I would go back to something uh, Eric said when he quoted um, Brian Stevenson that the North won the war, but the, the South uh, won the narrative because the problem you just articulated really stems from a narrative that says life and the resources uh, attended to life are zero sum game. So if uh, the only way for historically disenfranchised people to be enfranchised is we have to take from white people, for example, in order to give to black people. And you know, that's just a fundamentally flawed premise. Um, because what, what we're really saying is the historically disenfranchised uh, bring uh, an extraordinary set of skills to expand the entire pie. And so if we actually brought more skills to the party and expanded what we have available, everyone would benefit. And I think that that's, that's what gets lost because people buy into this zero-sum game notion that um, there always have to be haves and have-nots. And since we have historically delineated haves and have-nots along racial lines, that's the only way to to change uh, is, is to just change the colors of the haves and the have-nots. And that's just the absolute wrong way to think about it, that if you enfranchised the have-nots, their skill sets would, in fact, enfranchise and lift everyone. Thanks for that. Jocelyn? You know, I often think of this as complex more than I think of it as complicated. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, the advancement around DE&I and, and the goals that organizations that are, are we set as, as individual leaders 
there are a lot of a lot of levels and layers to it in order to be successful. And I think some of the backlash comes when people realize the 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 amount of work, the layers and the levels and the length of time um, that's involved. That it's not as simple as you know setting the goals um, in the conference room and then you know you know setting setting on about your normal you know way and day. And they're just going to happen. I mean, it's constant focus and revisiting and challenging um, the status quo that I think most people don't yet have awareness around. And the other thing is that I agree with Shaka that there, there's, there's room and opportunity for all. I also, though, have I, I believe and have witnessed in places where there isn't necessarily room for all, right? If they're, you know eight seats on a board and the board becomes more diverse. Um, there are those who will look at that as, you know, less of an opportunity for them. And I think it also, that, that then means that companies um, who we've agreed have a role in the micro and the macro of this, help people to understand how that diversity at that board level how that impacts you as an employee, as a leader, and as a shareholder. And it's not just in that seat. And that, in fact, diversifying that board benefits you more, um, you know, as the owner, shareholder, partner, etc. Yeah. Eric, what say you? I couldn't agree more um, with uh, what, what all of my colleagues have said. I think, as Brian said, there is a narrative uh, that uh, this is a zero-sum equation. And I think we have to challenge that wherever and whenever we can. As Jocelyn says, um, you know, diversity is not less than, and in a macro sense, it's greater than. And we have to you know, shout that from the rooftops uh, and, and make sure that our colleagues give them examples so they can, they can understand and appreciate that. Diversity is a strength that benefits us all. Um, I, I think we can make that case as a country, and I think we can make that case within our own organizations. I know that in clients I've done work with, I'll give an example of a client that formed a joint venture entity uh, and brought three shareholders together who had never worked together before, um, but working on a common project, each of them you know, specializing in a different discipline. And it's the type of project that each of them would have individually undertaken on their own, uh, but, but decided to partner together for this opportunity. And sitting in a room with them, and this has nothing to do with race, uh, this is a, a general concept about diversity, and hearing them put ideas on the table about how to pursue the project and have one shareholder say, well, if I never thought about it that way, but if you are able in your discipline to do this, I can in my discipline do that. And the third shareholder likewise saying, wow, I never thought about those two things, but if you think we do that, I can do this. And the result was a project that was a winning project that was uh, better than uh, the competition and, and won the day. The, the truth is that people from the same backgrounds are wired to think the same or similarly. And I think we all benefit when we uh, are uh, put together with, with folks who challenge that. Um, and, and I think that's a case that we have to continue to make in a macro sense, because as Jocelyn says, there might be circumstances uh, where, where someone might uh, feel that they pay a cost for an individual decision. But in a macro sense, we all benefit from that um, in whatever system we're participating in, and we have to instill that same belief in others. Thank you all so much for that. I mean, I, I have to tell you, that, that this last issue, this conversation we just had, this deep-seated wrong around believing that somehow 
you know, the, the backlash is, is, is somehow more important than managing to the problem. It, you know, Brian, you called it a third rail. I, I think it's not only a third rail. I think it's a third rail that seems to be showing up more and more and more. So I love your answers. I love the idea of elevating the fact that the funny thing is when you make it better for the disenfranchised, you end up making it better for everybody. The diversity tends to create value for for everyone when if you had focused at the back row, somehow you never create as much value as when you focus at the micro. And and I think our comfort in saying that and proving that to folks is going to be a part of this journey. Any other closing comments? I want to make sure that we, we just, as we wrap up, I just want to want to pause for a second. You know, again, the whole point of this podcast is, is to give people, you know, little nuggets, little ways of thinking differently about why it is that, you know, we on this, this call are so comfortable and confident that we know we're doing both the right thing the right way. And so any other takeaways, any other final thoughts from each of you, if you're going to leave somebody out there that was feeling, you know, just a little bit frustrated today as they take on this challenge, what would you tell them? What would you say to somebody that, that gets up every day trying to do what, what we on this call take, you know, take for granted is this is the world we live in? Well, I would say lean into the data. So to your point, Gary, you know, in most instances where you include disenfranchised or those who hadn't been included prior, it's a win for everyone. And just making sure that in all the organizations we're sharing the impact of that um, via data, um, whether it's, you know, in businesses that, that I've worked in, you know, the movie business, the cost of not doing a particular movie or making a particular show and the opportunity that was, that would be created, you know, had the, had the company done so, um, or when they did so, what the benefit was to the overall. And I'm sure in, you know, in most organizations, there's some example of where it worked, um, or in instances where they weren't as diverse or inclusive, you know, in the workforce, workplace, marketplace that had impact and continually sharing and updating that data. Yeah, I would say, I would tell that person, uh, don't focus so much on changing the world as changing your world. You know, what, where do you have influence? Where do you have the ability to touch lives and move the needle, move the conversation uh, forward. You know, um, Brian and I, in, in our current positions, you know, just hiring Eric and putting him on a matter and empowering him to lead a, a significant piece of work um, is a game changer because Eric then can put Black associates on the matter. And those black associates may then choose to stay at O'Melveny and make partner. And then, you know, you create a, a virtuous cycle. So I think a lot of people get frustrated because they're trying to figure out how to change the world. And they forget that um, part of changing the world is changing your world and, you know, just breaking it off in bite-sized chunks. It's funny, you, I don't know, Chaka, because we're both from Chicago. This is the way we think. But I was thinking of it in terms of politics. All politics are local. Manage what you can manage in your own backyard. When I say to black folks all the time, <clears throat> when we get into these conversations, why do I have to be the one to educate? Why do I have to be the one to explain? And I said, well, if it's not going to be you, then who's going to be? 
right? But by the same token, you have to give people grace that they don't know what they don't know. I can't blame someone who doesn't understand white privilege because they wouldn't understand it because they that's just how they 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 got the they got the lottery on how they were how they were uh, how they were born. But I don't think that that's something as black folks we can hold against them. So you got to lean into those conversations. And what I say to my white counterparts is, look, you no longer have the excuse of I didn't know I was unaware. Uh, I knew the one black guy on my block or the one one guy I knew at school and he was cool. You now have an obligation to lean in and, and, and educate yourself and take care of what you can take care of in your backyard. When you hear something that's not right, don't ignore it. You see something that's not right, got to call people on it. And it starts with, you know, what's in your own backyard. And I, and I, I find myself having these conversations with, with people who are, you would think would, would well understand it. But I, I just believe that sort of, as you said, Shaka, you got to, you got to own what you own and control what you can, but it starts in your own backyard because it's all local. Everything here is local. Then it finds its way and can find its way to permeate beyond. Uh, and if we just take care of what's, what's right in front of us. I love it. Eric. Wow. It's hard to, hard to offer any better wisdom. Um, I, I, uh, I, I would build on all that by saying that, uh, you know, we talked earlier about what leaders can do. And I think we all should recognize that leaders include us and they include all of us. Um, you know, at my organizational law firm, partners are thought of as leaders, but any lawyer is a leader. Any staff person is a leader. And um, each of us can make a difference. And each of us is uh, in one way or another empowered to make a difference, whether that's uh, holding each other accountable um, or questioning what we see other leaders do and calling things out in the appropriate circumstances, or at a very minimum, just the power of our own example uh, and, and in our own conduct, being inclusive, being deliberative, uh, being aspirational. I, I think we all ought to recognize that leadership power that each of us has. And uh, I, I don't think we've ever had more momentum on on these, these subjects, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, in my lifetime than we do now. Um, so I think now is the time for us to uh, push forward, and now is the time for us to uh, be inventive in in uh, developing um, strategies and our own action plans for impacting these issues uh, to to make progress. First, let me say thank you to each of you. I, I really appreciate the the power, the passion, the the thoughtfulness of of your time with us today. It was it was huge. So, Jocelyn, Brian, Shaka, Eric. Thank you so much for being part of the family. Thank you so much for being in the network and in the club. I will tell you that as we as we do these, you're not getting away. Don't be surprised when we circle back because there's a reunion that's going to happen with all of these panelists because there's just too much goodwill not to bring us together and sort of share what we're thinking. But I want to again, I want to say thank you. And then on behalf of Ivy Planet Group and on Melvinie's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion podcast series, it's complicated. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for staying involved. Keep your head up, folks. This is doable. It's happening. What we are talking about on this podcast is absolutely happening every day. You just have to believe. Thanks again. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you for listening to It's Complicated, a podcast by O'Melveny and Myers and Ivy Planning Group. 
This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP. Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York, 10036. Telephone, 212-326-2000.